If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to John chapter 1. We are in our fourth week now looking at the prologue to John's Gospel. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, as our Heavenly Father, as we just sang together, let all mortal flesh keep silence. And so, Father, we pray now that in our time of silence, you would speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Father, we thank you that you have promised to be with us, to never leave us. We thank you for being our guide and shepherd to the end. We thank you for your word, which is indeed a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our minds to know, our hearts to embrace the truth of your word, and that you would strengthen our feet and hands to follow Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Well, when you say you're looking forward to Christmas, what do you mean? Uh, For some of us, and you know who you are, it may mean being over. But for others, it may be the big two. That is, people and presence. Seeing people, being with people, receiving and giving gifts. Now, I think we can, with biblical justification say that this began all the way back at the Incarnation. You see, the announcement of the arrival of Jesus is about seeing people and receiving presence as well. Indeed, our Advent series, Christmas Presence, God's great promise to be with His people, to be present with his people and that promise and its fulfillment is seen most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. For the past four Sundays our hymn of thanksgiving has been yet not I but through Christ in me and we have sang what gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer. Jesus is a gift given to us And we've also sung this, the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. The gift of God's presence. We're in the gospel according to John. Matthew and Luke go back to Abraham, to Adam, and the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, Mark's gospel, Mark begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. John, however, goes back to the beginning. He goes behind the scenes, back to eternity past. He lifts the curtain for us to see what we otherwise could not see. Matthew and Luke tell us what happened At the time of the birth of Jesus, John tells us what those things mean. John is, as it were, writing theologically. The gospel according to John, it's so simple we've been saying that children can memorize. It's so profound that older people in their last 
breaths want to hear, I am the resurrection and the life. I want to hear, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's a pool safe enough for children to swim in. It's deep enough for an elephant to drown. And I think those of you that have been with us for the past few weeks, you've seen the depth, the incomprehensible depth of the opening verses to John's gospel. Remember that John writes a letter to believers and he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. But John, the Apostle John, in his book, he writes so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The prologue, these first 18 verses, is a prelude of coming attractions. It invites us in to the symphony that is John's gospel. It introduces us to themes that will unfold in John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And whereas the rest of John, as you see beginning in verse 19, is about the earthly ministry of Jesus, the prologue is about his eternal identity. We've already seen in the verse two verses that Jesus is from the beginning. And then we looked at verses three through five and we saw that Jesus is the life and the light. And last week in verses six through 13, we saw that as the light, Jesus comes into the world. We saw that Jesus is not recognized by the world. In particular, those irreligious people who are, who are attempting to be their own Lord. They are blind and they cannot see. But Jesus is not only uh, um, uh, not recognized by the world, he's rejected by his own people. The religious who are attempting to be their own savior. They are blind and they don't want to see. But Jesus is received by a remnant of people. People whose blindness has been removed in order to see Jesus for who he is. He is received by people who have becoming, become a believing group of people who now have God as their father and the church as their family. This remnant of believing people have become something that they were not previously. They've become children of God. With God as father and the church as family. Well, today in verses 14 through 18, we will conclude our series as we see that Jesus makes God known. Well, here's the one sentence title of John's prologue that I came up with. Jesus, who is from the beginning, comes into the world to make God known. Jesus, who is from the beginning, comes into the world to make God known. Join with me as I, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 and 2 and then pick back up in verse 14 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, let's unpack our text as we consider a stunning announcement to a particular audience. This stunning announcement, we see it at the beginning of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we see it in verse 18. The only, he, that is Jesus, the word, has made God known. It's a three-part announcement. There's a climax and a conclusion of the prologue. It's the most profound statement of the incarnation. It leads to the account of the historical Jesus. The divine word has become human Jesus. God became man, yet Jesus never ceased being God. John is affirming his deity and celebrating his humanity. Here is eternity and time intersecting. The creator and the creature are co-joined. God and man united. It's a climactic assertion of the prologue. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The spirit and the divine, John is saying, are not opposed to matter and the human. In other words, God is the author of both what we can see and what we can't see. And there's no opposition between the two. We, we, we see this, this announcement. Number one, the word became flesh. It's the most amazing event in all of history as the infinite God steps into a finite world. The world, the, excuse me, the word did not cease being God. This is addition, not subtraction. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. He rather added humanity. Mysterious, to be sure. Read the something to think about quote and you'll see that if you get the miracle of the incarnation, every other miracle of Scripture falls into place. He took on humanity. We heard that in Philippians 2 in our prayer. The eternal Son of God took on a full and genuine human nature. And He took on flesh, humanity, in its weakness and dependence, in its vulnerability and smallness. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he pitched his tent among us. There's an allusion to the wilderness wandering where God went with his people. First the tent, then the tabernacle, and ultimately the temple. God manifested his presence with his people. And now he's taking up residence among his people in the incarnate word. You see, Jesus is the place. Jesus is the person where God's people and God meet. And if you read through God, John's gospel, of course, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is saying that you get to the Father only through me. I am the revelation of the Father. And then at the end we read, He has made Him known. It reminds us as readers of verse 1, this declaration of in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God is now explained. 
Here is a fundamental truth. God is invisible. Paul writes to Timothy and says this, No one has ever seen or can see God. And yet, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, reveals God. He brings the invisible and the invisible together that's without parallel or analogy. There is no other possibility of our knowing God except through Jesus Christ, the Word. And John's Gospel makes that clear from beginning to end. Now you notice in the outline, what does it say? A stunning announcement. Stunningly good news. The Word became flesh. God, as it were, becomes vulnerable. It's the radical truth of Christianity. Those of you that know anything about Islam know that Allah is power. Allah is control. There is no love in Allah. It is submission. Submission. This is the radical truth of Christianity. Jesus didn't come and take a risk. He knew that it would cost him his life and yet he came It's good news for us, friends. We read in Hebrews, he had to be made like his brothers. He had to be made like you and me. Every few weeks, we we talk about this merciful high priest, this one who was like us in every way and yet without sin. No other religion has this because it's man-made. This is the revealed religion, the true religion. God coming to a helpless people in need of rescue. A few weeks ago, I quoted J.C. Ryle saying that when he tries to understand these first few verses of John, he's kind of stopped in his tracks. It's, 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 a, it's the, trying to understand the infinite God with a finite mind. Well, in my study, I ran across a prayer of the Eastern Church that goes like this. We see most eloquent orators, voiceless as fish, when they must speak of thee, O Jesus our Savior. For it is beyond their power to tell how thou art both perfect man and immutable God at the same time. This stunningly good news, this stunning announcement of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, It leaves us speechless, silent in worship and awe and adoration. Now, as words on a page, both to the original readers, that's them back then, and later readers, that's us right now, this announcement can be ho-hum, okay, whatever, boring, next. Because this announcement is stunning only to people who have seen His glory. Look with me at the second half of verse 14. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. This is an abrupt change of pronouns. It goes from the third person to the first person. All of a sudden, it's not other people, it's we. We have seen His glory. The glory of God the Father in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, in the temple. And what is glory? It's the outward shining of the inward being of God. And we see a glimpse of how God wants to describe Himself. He is gracious and merciful. The all-powerful God makes known His powerful, steadfast love. It's, it's people who have seen His glory, the glory of God the Father, but also who have seen the glory of Jesus the, the Son, the only Son, the one-of-a-kind Son. You see, the Son has divine glory by right. His character, as we will see unfold in John, is one that is attractive and honorable, and you see that in all of His ministry. His ministry of words, His ministry of deeds. John's here thinking about the transfiguration where the glory of Jesus will be revealed for a moment in time to a few of the disciples as they're with Him. The glory of Jesus, it's radically different than what was expected. And what was the glory of Jesus not to be served, but to serve and to give His ransom his life is a ransom for many. You guys know what it's like to be in the presence of someone powerful and smart and wise. And they can speak eloquently and they can operate skillfully. But when you see that powerful, wise, skillful person stooping to help the least, stooping to help the lost, not looking after their own interests, but the interest of others, you are overwhelmed with, as it were, their glory. And glory that is full of grace and truth. It's grace and truth, truth and grace. We've sung about it. It's in the Word. It's Old Testament terms describing God's covenant mercy, His steadfast love and faithfulness. Isn't it interesting Moses asked God to make himself known and God promises he'll be with him and Moses asked to see his glory and you can't see my face and live. But let me tell you a little bit about myself. I am the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. My friends, do you know that as the God who's made himself known? Is that your first thought of God that he is gracious and merciful for you who have blown it big time? That's who God is, full of grace and truth. The Word made flesh fully manifest the gracious covenant-making. I will be your God and you will be my people. Covenant-making and covenant-keeping, character of God. God is loyal to His covenant and to the promises that it entails. And indeed, children, you know, the Bible can be summarized how? Promises made and promises kept. That's our God. The person and work of Jesus. It's an expression of God's grace. It's a revelation of His truth. 
The announcement is stunning to people and only to people who have seen His glory, but also who have received His grace. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. From the fullness of grace and truth, we have received grace upon grace. The NIV says, one blessing after another. The free and unmerited favor of God, God's gracious kindness to the undeserving, God's pursuing, God's stooping, God taking the initiative, the generosity of God. When I told my spiritual mentor, Wayne, Haddock, who died back in 2012, what the name of the church was, Grace and Peace, I said, uh, I I wanted that name to be Grace and Peace to remind us of of who God is. He's gracious, and what He does, He gives us peace. And he laughed, and he said, you know, there are a lot of churches that have grace in the name, but they forget about grace. I said, oh, Wayne, we we don't want to be that kind of church. No, pray to the end that we will never forget the reality of God's kindness, his undeserved favor. Help us, Wayne, pray that we would always keep God's grace and, and peace out in front of us. And you see that here. From the fullness, we have received grace upon grace. From Moses to Jesus Christ, a contrast was given and a comparison was made, but as I said, it's not an opposition. Because from what truly existed with Moses was fully revealed in Christ. And it's a continuity between promise and fulfillment. That's why there's not a radical disjunction between Malachi and Matthew. It's one book, one message, one people. From the beginning, God has said, faith in me, faith in the one I will send, is how you're right with me. It's the idea of a flower. Its blossom is just a fuller expression of what it was in the bud. It's not a different flower, but instead of seeing the bud, you see the blossom. Moses, we read, hid his face from God, but Jesus exegetes. In other words, Jesus reveals the face of God to us. The law which came through Moses necessitated the grace and truth which came through Jesus for the law could in no way save us. Rather, it drove us to Christ. The grace and truth that Jesus brings, John presents grace and truth. The grace and truth of of Jesus to people. Why? So that they may believe. Well, not only is there a shift of pronouns, there's a movement from the past to the present, from history to experience. Because our text here, what we just read, provides a good definition of a Christian. What's a Christian? A Christian is a person who has seen his glory, 
who have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A Christian is a person who has received his grace, who has received something that they didn't deserve and they couldn't obtain. They couldn't achieve. They could only receive. People who have seen his glory and who have received his grace, the lavish grace, the overflowing grace, the abundant grace of God in Christ. And Jesus reveals God's glory and grace from the cradle to the cross, from his birth to his death. So the question that that has to be asked is this, from this text. Have you seen and received? Have you seen this person? Have you received his greatest gift, his present, his grace? You see, Christians see the glory of God and Christians have received the grace of God in Christ. And they've done it by faith. Faith that indeed is a gift. Christmas. People and presents. God came to us and gave us himself. His very presence. We read in Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We read in Colossians 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We read in our text, Jesus made God known. And Jesus himself said this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. My friends, what is God like? He's like Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, the eternal and infinite, have stepped into time in the finite world in which we live, and you have made yourself known. Father, would you give us the humility to receive what we could not achieve in any way, shape, or form. And those of us who have received already, Father, would you keep us from thinking that achievement gets gets us to where we're going. Oh, Father, help us to see it's all of grace from beginning to end. And yet, it is a robust grace that changes us from one degree of glory to another. Oh, Father, We are looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face. Indeed, he will be the gift and his presence will be the gift. The one gift that will last forever. Father, help us to persevere and walk by faith and not by sight as we look forward to that day. For we pray in his name. Amen.